From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org holiness. Well, this is Vern Jewett, and this is the Holiness Podcast, and we welcome you uh, joining us today. We're going to have a study today out of the book of Acts, the story of the conversion of a man named Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul and wrote almost half the books of the New Testament. And we're going to be exploring a holiness theme, which is the purpose of our podcast And I'm very excited about our lesson today. The title of it is Holiness, the Fruit of Obedience. Let me say to you that the tragedy of modern evangelism, in my judgment, is in calling many people to faith, but few to obedience. And that goes hand in hand with the desperate need for the teaching of holiness. And so today, holiness, the fruit of obedience will be our topic. I invite you to turn your Bibles, if you have them, to Acts, the 26th chapter. And that's where we will find our text and be studying together today. Now, I want to remind us of our Wesleyan understanding of salvation. I don't think we can do this enough. In fact, I think it is a neglected part of our teaching ministry that salvation in our Wesleyan heritage includes justification followed by sanctification. And the theme of holiness and sanctification includes the entire life of a believer from the moment they receive Christ as Savior until they die. Now, initial sanctification takes place when you are saved at the moment of conversion. I find it uh, to be a surprise to some Christians to discover that they're already sanctified. The classic Wesleyan understanding of multiple acts of grace is the context of our uh, study today and of the teaching on holiness in the Wesleyan tradition. It includes initial sanctification when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives when we receive Jesus as our Savior. There is continuing sanctification and the progressive restoration to the likeness of Christ that takes place as we continually grow in him. And ultimately, we pray and hope and seek entire sanctification and purity of heart, all to the glory of God. Now, I want to introduce you to a great Christian teacher and writer. Many of you will already know Oswald Chambers. He is most famous for his devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. It is a 365-day devotional book, which I had heard about all of my adult life, but did not actually read until just a couple of years ago. And I am the worse off for not having read it earlier. And I want to introduce you to what he has to say 
about the heredity of sin and the heredity of holiness, because I think it is a great introduction to our study today. Listen to him. If you happen to have a copy of My Outmost for His Highest, these uh, words come from October the 6th. Now, most of my copies are dated so that you can go through a whole year. This is what he has to say. If Jesus Christ is to regenerate me, what is the problem he is up against? I have a heredity I had no say in. I am not holy, nor likely to be. And if all Jesus Christ can do is tell me I must be holy, then his teaching plants despair. But if Jesus Christ is a regenerator, one who can put into me his own heredity of holiness, then I begin to see what he is driving at when he says that I have to be holy. Redemption means that Jesus Christ can put into any man, any woman, the hereditary disposition that was in himself. And all the standards he gives us are based on that disposition. His teaching is for the life he puts in us. The New Testament teaching about regeneration is this. When a man or woman is struck by a sense of need, God will put the Holy Spirit into their spirit. And his or her personal spirit will be energized by the Spirit of the Son of God until Christ be formed in you quoting the New Testament. The moral miracle of redemption is that God can put into me a new disposition whereby I can live a totally new life. So we are talking about the disposition of sin being replaced by the disposition of holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the heredity of sin being replaced by what Oswald Chambers calls the heredity of holiness. Friends, this is holiness. God putting the Holy Spirit into our spirit, energizing us by the Spirit of the Son of God. It begins at conversion, and it carries on through the rest of our lives. So our topic is holiness is the fruit of obedience, and we're going to be looking at the amazing conversion experience of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles, and the writer of so many New Testament epistles. Now his story, the story of his conversion, is told by Luke in the ninth chapter of Acts. Now that is the most full account I'm hoping that many of you are aware of it, and if not, that you'll take the time to go back and read it. But two other times in the book of Acts, Luke records Paul giving his testimony and telling the story again. It happens in Acts chapter 22, and it happens again in Acts chapter 26. I want to remind us this is the same Paul who taught us that we are saved to righteousness leading to holiness. We've studied this previously, but 
Let me read two verses for you from the sixth chapter of Romans. Verses which incidentally are very important as the context to uh, what follows in chapter 7, which of course is filled with controversy and misunderstanding. But chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. So righteousness is designed to lead to holiness. And then verse 22, just two verses later. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit, and the word actually is fruit, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. The fruit of obedience, you see, is holiness. Now, today, in this life, and it leads to the result, which is eternal life. Now, let's read the story as it's recorded in Acts 26. And this is before King Agrippa, who was Caesar's representative king. He was a Jew. And Paul is defending himself and tells his story. And I want to read verses 9 through 19. This is the New International Version. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. That's quite a picture, isn't it? Paul telling the story as the great persecutor of the Jews. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them, and this is our text, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not 
disobedient to the vision from heaven. Jesus' instructions to Saul about his calling, verse 18, describe five aspects of the obedient, transformed human holy life. First, he says, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes. The reality is that all of us need to have our eyes opened to the very purpose for which we have been created. And it takes a miracle to do that. Paul was on a wrong course. The Damascus Road was the wrong road. The Damascus Road is traveled by every person ever born because the Bible tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When Paul was asked to defend his faith, what he did was he told his story. Now, our story is a lot like Paul's in some very important aspects. Christianity meets all of us when we are on wrong courses. Paul, then called Saul, was on his way to Damascus, intent upon doing a wrong thing. Have we not also been on the wrong road with a wrong purpose, armed by the power of a wrong authority? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And so I suggest do not fasten your attention upon the word Damascus and say you were never there. Damascus in this history is a symbolical word and it stands for wrong courses, wrong purposes, wrong destinies. And so all of us need to have our eyes opened. Saul typifies every man or woman today that are blinded and on a wrong course. They, we, all need a miracle. Now, many times it's unbelievers. But my years of pastoring have taught me that it's not always unbelievers that are on a wrong course. Sometimes believers are in the clutches of the enemy. But everything starts with a miracle, opening the spiritual eyes of a person. Now, we live in a day where the tragic truth is many people don't believe in miracles. I would suggest it's because they don't have a God big enough to perform one. And let me remind you that the miracle of becoming restored in relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord is God's purpose for every person. Let's reaffirm the universal call to salvation. It is not a call extended to only certain ones who have been chosen. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 says, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants to open their eyes. And that takes a miracle. Isn't it wonderful when you see God opened the eyes of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. There's nothing that can compare to that moment of miracle. You see, we believe that 
There are no impossible cases. There are no hopeless situations. Here's the gospel truth. Every person is capable of responding to God's grace. And it takes a miracle initiated by God for that to happen. There's an old gospel song we sang when I was a boy. I hear it occasionally. Talks about the miracles of the world we live in. It took a miracle to put the stars in space. It took a miracle to hang the world in place. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle, a miracle of love and grace. So the first step, the first aspect of the obedient transformed holy life is that our eyes are open to spiritual truth and that only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. We will we have often mentioned and sometimes taught on the doctrine of prevenient grace but God is working and has spoken to the heart of every person and salvation begins with God initiating it and it's God that does the miracle. So, our text says that Jesus said to Saul, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. The second aspect of this transformed holy life is a new understanding. Most scholars believe Luke is referring back to Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6 and the responsibility of the people of Israel to be a light to the nations and to turn them from darkness to light using the same language. But Saul was in the clutches of false belief. Look back with me at verses 9 and 10, the first two verses we read. He said, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. And then he goes on and talks about helping put uh, saints in prison and voting against them when they were put to death. He had a false belief. It's a symbol of God's blindness. His blindness means that he was completely blinded to the legitimacy of the claims and the way of Jesus Christ. Now the importance here is that Paul is told to do by Jesus for others what happened to him, to turn them from darkness to light. You know, that's his story, the wrong road we've talked about, the Damascus Road. If you read the story in chapter 9 and its more full expression, you'll find that it was Saul who said, let me go to Damascus. He wasn't appointed to go there. He went and asked the chief priests if he could go to Damascus. Now, Damascus is about 100 miles north, a little bit north uh, east, I believe, of Jerusalem. So it was not an easy journey. But there were 30 to 40 synagogues of Jewish people in Damascus. In fact, uh, a uh, very interesting note by the historian Josephus, 
uh, was a secular historian, noted that at one point in time, 10,000 Jews were martyred in Damascus. So it certainly is, uh, is corroborated and clear historically that many Jews had moved to Damascus. And of course, in those synagogues, this is now about two years after Jesus' death, in those synagogues, some have come and, uh, and brought the story of Jesus. And so Saul is headed to those synagogues in Damascus looking to take prisoners. He's against Jesus. He's living in darkness. The ninth chapter says that when he got near Damascus, which is interesting because it suggests maybe the last time to intervene is when God's grace came and struck Saul down from his horse. And God acts. There's a great light. He fell to the ground. Saul fell to the ground. Uh, a lot of commentators suggest he was riding a high horse, speaking uh, uh, of it as a picture of, uh, of his persecution of the Jews. But God brought him down. He fell to the ground. He was blinded. And then Jesus speaks. And Saul inquires the identity of who is speaking to him. And then Jesus identifies himself to Saul, and then he directs him on into the city. Well, what a shock. Saul just discovered that this Jesus is alive. Many self-righteous people today don't believe they need a savior. They need to be turned from darkness to light. They need a new understanding, as did Saul. We used to sing a little chorus, everybody ought to know who Jesus is. And then there's a little refrain in it. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000. Everybody ought to know. The problem is everybody doesn't know who Jesus is. So Paul is commanded to bring them a new understanding and turn them from darkness to light. Then Jesus says, and from the power of Satan to the power of God. So we know they need a miracle. They need their minds opened, their, uh, their uh, eyes opened. They need a new understanding of who Jesus is but they need more than that. They need to be delivered from the power of Satan. I believe it's fair to say that Saul was in the clutches, not only of false belief, but also of a devastating addiction. His addiction was the persecution of Christians. We read verses 9 and 10. Verse 11 goes on with that story. Many a time, Saul said, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, speaking of the saints, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. All leading up to the story of uh, his 
encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Did you hear that word obsessed and obsession? The Greek word for that is based on a root word, myenomai, which means to act like a maniac. <laughs> Our best attempts at homegrown righteousness are still but a moment from the unspeakable. Beth Moore, wonderful uh, teacher, in her book, To Live is Christ, which is uh, a wonderful book on the life of Paul, says this, Passions can turn a new direction with frightening speed. May none of us forget it. The prophet Isaiah said, All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. In Isaiah 64, 6. If all the righteousness we have is our own, it's just an act. And acts don't last very long. And then Beth Moore speaks about our story. In this story, we also get to see the purity of a Savior's mercy. Saul himself would later say in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Christ met Saul on the path to his darkest, most devious sin. Beth says, for that very moment, for the depths of Saul's depravity, Christ had already died. His addiction was the persecution of Christians. We all have addictions. We live in an addictive society. Now, we may not be addicted to alcohol or crack cocaine, which may come to your mind, or to opioids, but we all fight an addiction to something. The need is for deliverance. Now, we need a miracle. We need a new understanding. But the truth is we need to be delivered from the power of the evil one. The need for deliverance is universal. We have a wonderful daughter-in-law named Brittany. She was marvelously saved while attending Valdosta State University. And when she speaks of, and we met her not long after she was saved as a waitress in a restaurant that we stopped by on the road, <clears throat> when she told us about her salvation, about her conversion, both that time and most times after for the next few months, she always talked about being delivered. She didn't talk about being saved. She talked about being delivered. The need for deliverance is universal. Now, some of this message was developed in a recent time I was able to have with the Salvation Army officers, ministers, whose ministry is in rehabilitation centers where they deal with mostly drug addicts and uh, alcoholic addicts. And I asked them a, an honest question in an open discussion period. I asked them, uh, how do your men and women respond to the teaching about holiness? 
And their answer was poignant and clear. And they said that their history of failure, these people struggling with addiction, had made them believe and feel that it just couldn't happen to them. The truth is, we all need deliverance. We are captives who need to be set free. Now, some of us need cataclysmic intervention from God the Holy Spirit, much like Saul did. The miracle on Straight Street, I suggested to them, was the symbolic birth of their ministry in rehabilitation centers who bring the good news of Jesus and his ability to transform and to deliver them from their addictions. The truth is, if God can save Saul, who was Satan's greatest soldier against the early church, he can save any man or woman, boy or girl. And so this, this new, transformed, holy life, which begins when we are saved, includes a miracle. It includes a new understanding. It includes being delivered from the power of sin and of Satan. Now, Jesus goes on in his charge to Saul to say this, I'm sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Yes, that's exactly what it says. He's talking about salvation, and he's talking about the two elements to salvation that are found throughout all of the New Testament gospel message. People are to receive forgiveness of sins, which is justification, but they also are to receive a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You remember I said the tragedy of modern evangelism is calling many to faith, but few to obedience. Many Christian teachers and leaders today lament the watered-down gospel in our culture. Listen to John MacArthur in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus. He says, the gospel in vogue today holds forth a false hope to sinners. It promises them they can have eternal life, yet continue to live in rebellion against God. Indeed, it encourages people to claim Jesus as Savior, yet defer until later the commitment to obey him as Lord. It promises salvation from hell, but not necessarily freedom from sin and iniquity. It offers false security to people who revel in the sins of the flesh and spurn the way of holiness. By separating faith from faithfulness, it leaves the impression that intellectual assent is as valid as wholehearted obedience to the truth. Thus, the good news of Christ has given way to the bad news of an insidious, easy believism 
that makes no moral demands on the lives of sinners. And then MacArthur says, it is not the same message Jesus proclaimed. Friends, holiness is the fruit of obedience and is part of God's plan for our salvation. Let me add, let's ask ourselves what that vision meant to St. Paul. The heavens opened over him, a voice came down, he hears the voice of the master, and this is what he now knows. He knew then that Jesus Christ was the only true master, and that in the service of that master would come what was best for him in the world. He knew that his life before that moment had been a failure because it had been against the true master of his life. And just as soon as he fastened himself to Jesus Christ as his master, he would enter upon that course which should bring forth all his powers and make him the man God intended him to be. That's the truth of the Christian life. But you see, we're dealing with a deadly half-truth. Part of the half-truth half relates to sin. I fear that if we asked a group of people who call themselves Christians, how does God deal with sin? The answer we would receive is by forgiving us. So millions of Christians believe that that's the only way God deals with sin. But that could not be further from the truth. Because he also deals with sin. In fact, more importantly, once you become his child, by giving us the Holy Spirit who wants to keep us from sinning. So millions of Christians today pray a prayer to receive Christ and then go about their lives something like this if they even pay attention to it. Sin, confess and be forgiven. Sin, confess and be forgiven. Sin, confess and be forgiven. They are saved, but they are stuck. Let me remind you of the lesson we learned from Oswald Chambers as we began today. The New Testament teaching about regeneration. And you know, that word simply means being given new life in Christ, being given spiritual life. Paul says in Ephesians that we were spiritually dead, but now we've been made alive. Regeneration is what we mean when we say that we are born again or born a second time. It is our spiritual birth. When a man is struck by a sense of need, Chambers says, God will put the Holy Spirit into his spirit and his personal spirit will be energized by the spirit of the Son of God until Christ be formed in us, in you. The moral miracle of salvation is that God can put a new disposition of holiness in my life. 
Saul was apprehended by Jesus and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you read the Acts 9 chapter, it says uh, when the, the scales came off his eyes and he was able to see again three days later, the Holy Spirit filled him. Friends, if you've accepted Jesus, the same is true of you today. The, pow- the grip of the Damascus Road, those who walk in it, and that was all of us, is living in darkness, having eyes that are blinded, and being under the power of Satan. Either you as a listener are saved by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, or you are on the Damascus Road. If you are on the Damascus Road, then we implore you to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to heart. Realize that Jesus died for your sins and receive him as your Savior. Experience having your eyes opened, being turned from darkness to light, being released and delivered from the power of Satan to God and receiving forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. The verse that really prompted all of this study for me was verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, Saul says, after quoting that charge he received from Jesus, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. That word, uh, that phrase, not disobedient, uh, Dr. Ben Witherington, a wonderful New Testament scholar, says uh, is a rhetorical tool called paranasis. But it is a tool which we use sometimes. And its purpose is to strengthen the power of what it is you are saying. So instead of saying, I was obedient to the heavenly vision, He makes it perfectly clear and strengthens what he's saying by saying, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now, friends, the real substance of this message will come from your own personal history. What what vision did you receive from God? What did you understand and experience when you received him as your Savior? Can you say with Paul, previously Saul, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision? Friends, holiness is the fruit of obedience. All through the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, God requires two things of his people, faith and obedience. The tragedy today is that many are called to faith and few to obedience. The call to obedience is the pathway to the fruit of holiness. God bless you. I hope you have enjoyed the study this week and we'll look forward to seeing you next month on the Holiness Podcast. Have a wonderful time and we'll see you then. 
Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you.